Welcome to Banjo Strings and Drinking Gourds, How America Culture Came to Be, the podcast of the Frontier Culture Museum of Virginia. I'm Alex. And I'm Rachel. Today's topic is something very topical to current events. We are going to be discussing inequality in the new world, and this is going to be more of a survey rather than any in-depth discussion of each type of inequality. There's just so much to unpack that we're going to treat this as a taster session for a very dense yet highly critical topic that greatly impacts current events. Yeah, history is full of stories that need to be told. Inequality can mean many things. It can mean have versus have-nots. It can mean being treated differently because of some intrinsic characteristic. It can mean the difference between life and death. For pretty much most of human history, there has been a semblance of inequality. And even in prehistory, we see a type of economic inequality with the rise of prestige goods and controlled access to resources. Economic inequality is an obvious one, but there's also legal inequality where certain groups of the population are denied rights or access to goods given to others. These are groups that are marginalized because of their beliefs, their culture, their skin tone, assumed or ascribed actions. The list goes on and on and on. That feeds directly into cultural inequality, which is a much more insidious aspect and one that can be harder to track down in history. We have to use the legal and economic strictures of oppression and disenfranchisement to get at the everyday type of biases and prejudices that underpin the more official structures. And unfortunately, once certain structures are in place, it can be very difficult to see where they came from and begin to untangle them from the body of legislation. Given that the American Revolution was an actual revolution against perceived injustices, why didn't our founding fathers think to include provisions for welfare and equality in the Constitution? Well, they were slightly more concerned with freeing the whole of the colonies from the legal and economic inequalities England was giving them. And interestingly enough, early on, there really wasn't that much economic disparity in colonial America. Dependent on who you were and where you were, in the book, Unequal Gains, American Growth and Inequality Since 1700, the authors write that the Gini coefficient, a statistic measure of inequality, was 0.367 in New England compared to 0.57 in Europe. On a scale of 0 to 1, that's a massive shift, although it wasn't necessarily reflected everywhere in the colonies, also keeping in mind that there were fewer people overall in a much harsher environment. Mostly, the lack of disparity was due to the fact that owning land was much easier in the colonies than in Europe. Generally, if you paid for your passage or survived your indentureship, and this includes a few Africans in the early 17th century, you could acquire land and profit from it. No paying rent or giving a portion of your crops to your landlord meant people were earning more per annum than ever before and could pay their labor forces more, whether in coinage or in trade than in England. This was not to say there weren't poor people or landless laborers, not to mention enslaved labor, but on the whole, there were fewer of them in Europe, given them a rise to a mythicized American ideal. That's really something. Given that the story we tell on the old world side of the museum, the story of the people who left their homes to go to America, is largely about the lack of opportunity in Europe and the lack of upward mobility. Exactly. So you can see that it's a really strong draw or pull factor to entice people to become colonists. And because you had to have money to get over here, the very true poor of Europe didn't get to leave, which is yet another kind of inequality, the ability versus the inability to leave your circumstances and go to America and start over with owning land. Even if some of the land they were taking was originally Indian land. Right. It's not a good story. 
the American dream has a very dark underside. And even that slogan, the American dream, has meant different things over time. Since the 1950s or so, we've taken that to mean owning a house, having a family and a successful career, not needing to worry about money. The kind of thing 1950s TV shows thrived on so much, they've become a kind of cliche. But it was in the 1930s that the phrase really took off and had a different, more aspirational feel. James Truslow Adams wrote in The Epic of America, defining the phrase as, quote, that dream of a land in which life should be better and richer and fuller for everyone, with opportunity for each according to ability or achievement, end quote. Not entitlement, not whites first, or the wealthy first, just that everyone should aspire to have more enriched lives. He's not even talking about money, just satisfaction and fulfillment in your life. Post-war America took the phrase and made it a competition to be better, to have more than your neighbors. Very interesting how economic disparity takes off under the guise of a lofty goal like the American dream. Exactly. The equalitarian spirit surrounding the revolution and the growth of a new nation didn't last very long. But around the turn of the 19th century, legal decisions started to protect property rather than encourage the ability for everyone to access property. This was fine on the outset of the revolution. But when the population keeps growing, we start running into the same problems Europe and especially England had with too many people for too little land. That's when the frontier opened up really started as in westward expansion, as in manifest destiny, as in the white man having a so-called divine right to everything. Having access to that land, even if it was traditionally Indian land, meant the opportunity to move people out of the increasingly crowded civilized area, have them willingly do so with the incentive of owning their own land. Indian needs were considered secondary to white need, even if technically done through diplomacy. And this is where we run into cultural differences that actually have far-ranging consequences. I'm not sure what to call this inequality, but the English and the Northern Europeans had an interesting view of land. In the book Creatures of Empire, How Domesticated Animals Transferred Early America by Virginia Jean Anderson, writes that the English viewed land and animals as gifts from gods and how they had an obligation to change it for their betterment. The English believed forests were uncivilized and changing them into fields and villages was a true mark of civilization. The English were biased when looking at the New World. The English thought their land was unimproved. They saw forests, no fenced-in fields, in their minds, inadequate villages, no roads, and no domesticated animals. Therefore, the Indians did not really own their land as they had not changed the land or managed to domesticate any animals. A very arrogant viewpoint and very wrong. Still, this is a very powerful viewpoint and explains the action of the colonists and settlers in the colonial and early national period. The point we need to stress is this viewpoint was incorrect on many levels. The Indians had changed the land to suit their needs and lifestyle. The Indians burned the underbrush to help hunt animals like deer. The forests were almost park-like with open paths making it easy to travel from one area to the next. Something you cannot do today because of the underbrush. They used rivers as highways and designed the perfect boat for this travel, the dugout log canoe. The way they planted corn, beans, and squash was very productive, with yields much higher than the one crop in one field European method. The last point is that there are only two animals that have become domesticated in North America, the dog and the turkey. There is no animal similar to the cow, horse, pig, or sheep native to North America. Therefore, there was no need to clear land for pasturage. The introduction of European crops like wheat, barley, rye, and domesticated animals like cows, horses, pigs, and sheep changed the land. 
The actions of the English and the Europeans upon the land once they arrived very quickly changed the land to become more like Europe. We will do a future podcast on this subject. Now, earlier you mentioned the economic disparity in the colonial period was less for whites and free blacks. Let's turn to another type of inequality, the free versus the enslaved. Some of you may be familiar with the history of slavery in America, but here's a quick rundown if you aren't. Jamestown received its first shipment of enslaved people in 1619. The anniversary was 2019, and there was a lot of media interest in the very well-done special exhibits and activities there. The overall numbers of enslaved people coming to the New World in the slave era is 11 to 12 million. However, the figure is worse. In the book, The Slave Ship, A Human History by Marcus Redeker, he writes that 15 million Africans were kidnapped, captured, and the track to the slave ports and coast resulted in 3 million people dying. The journey over resulted in another 3 million people dying. The business of moving slaves was so brutal, ship owners and investors were aware of this mortality rate and took insurance on the mortality of the enslaved. In other words, the business of the Middle Passage resulted in the murder of 10 to 20% of all enslaved people on the boats. Once the enslaved people reached the New World, many never recovered from the journey, and perhaps 10% died within the first year of arriving in the New World. Most of the enslaved people went to the Caribbean and Brazil to work on sugar and coffee plantations. Very few went to the 13 British colonies. The difference was the sugar and coffee plantations worked the enslaved people so hard most were dead within five to ten years. These plantations needed a steady supply of slaves just to run the business. Historians believe 10,000 enslaved people arrived in Virginia in the 17th century and 280,000 arrived in the 18th century. Sadly, this is definitely topical to current events, and probably facts and figures that don't often get taught in high schools. Slavery of African people is one of the historical inequalities that combines all the categories. Socioeconomic, based on a so-called privilege of owning a slave and the use of slaves to drive agriculture. Legal, in which enslaved persons were considered to have few if any rights under the law. And cultural, in which the very institution of slavery in the colonial period was driven by a mistaken belief in the superiority of the white man. Now, I've heard visitors compare indentured servitude of white Europeans to slavery. That's a fairly common misconception, given the rise of a middle-class bias against having a serving class. And also stems from the indenturing of the first Africans brought forcibly to the New World. Yes, to us, indentured servitude is not complete freedom. You had to obey your master or mistress, you were stuck doing the same thing for a set amount of time, but that last one is key. Indentured service had an end date. Were conditions sometimes horrible and not to one's liking? Definitely. Did indentured servants run away and get hunted down? Sure. But there was an end in sight. Enslaved people as property didn't have that luxury. Now, the Africans forcibly bore over in the early 17th century. They were considered indentured servants. Although there was a definite difference in treatment, especially in a work type, that was slowly codified into law. An example of this is the John Punch case in 1640. A trio of indentured servants, including John Punch, an African, along with a Dutchman and a Scotsman, ran away from their masters. While they all received the same whipping, 
the European servants were slapped with only additional years on their indentureship. However, on the basis of origin as written in the court sentence, John Punch, the African servant, legally became the first slave for life, having to serve his master and descendants for the extent of his natural life. Further legal decisions made it very clear that there was a distinct difference in the eyes of the white court between whites and Africans, even of similar status and accused of the same offense. Legally, most people ascribe the start of racial-driven slavery in Virginia as 1662, when children were ascribed to the same status as their mother, producing the next generation of enslaved people. This started over 300 years of systemic legal differences based solely on the concept of race. Conversely, indentured servitude was an exchange, not a life sentence. Europeans who couldn't afford the passage to the New World got the voyage and room and board paid for in exchange for a set of years of labor. After the term was up, those indentured servants were able to take the skills they'd learned and have as much access to social mobility and land ownership as any other colonists. Let's break down exactly what indentured servitude was and why people actually went along with it. James Evans, who wrote the book Immigrants, Why the English Sailed to the New World in the 17th Century, summed it up very succinctly in a podcast by saying it was perhaps the worst century in English history. The reasons are many. A change in colder climate resulted in many crop failures. The winter of 1648 was particularly bad. A textile depression in the 1630s because of the Thirty Years' War on the continent. Civil War from 1642 to 1646, and again in 1648, and unbelievably again in 1649 to 1651. A depression afterwards because of the effects of the Civil War. A series of unfortunate events in the 1660s, plague, the Great Fire of London in 1666, and the Dutch raid on the Midway in 1667. A constitutional crisis in 1688 resulted in the Glorious Revolution and William and Mary as King and Queen of England. This is sounding somewhat like 2020. The population in England is increasing in the 17th century when all these calamities are taking place up to about 1650 when the population starts to take a downturn. The common lands at various times in the century are being enclosed, which is a boom for landowners and a crisis for laborers who lose the rights to farm or raise animals on the common lands. All of these caused a great many people to decide to take their chances in the new world. Over 450,000 English people left England to settle in the Caribbean and the North American in the 17th century. In addition, 350,000 people left to settle in Ireland. The overwhelming majority of these people were indentured servants. The peak years for English immigrants to the New World was 1650 to 1660. Historians believe up to 10,000 people were leaving per month. James Evans called this section as despair. Most of these people had just given up and succeeded in England and were desperate for any chance, including working for basically nothing for five years, just in hope that maybe life would be better after the indentureship. In Virginia, 120,000 people came over from England in the 17th century. 75% were indentured servants. Yet the population of Virginia in 1700 was 80,000 indicating that it was a struggle just to stay alive in the 17th century in Virginia for the English. That's definitely an extreme disparity in condition for early colonists. And that brings us right back to the economic disparity that would eventually even out toward the late 18th century, and leads right back into cultural inequality as the treatment of colonists of means versus their indentured servants in early America was distinctly different. 
whichever level of society, basically, whatever freedoms you were granted, ensured your specific treatment from others. This influx of population early on to the coastal regions brings about another that is often overlooked, how the more settled coastal regions view the frontier. There's a definite perception of anyone being willing to move beyond the civilized, structured, English-style towns with their rigid social distinctions and head out to carve their living from the untamed as being uncultured or rough and tumble. This is the same bias that most growing societies seem to develop. The Romans dealt with their peripheral communities the same way, functional in providing resources, but much more barbaric than those living closer to the core settlements. For the tidewater communities, those moving out to the frontier, especially in the Valley of Virginia as it opened up in the mid-18th century, were often undesirables. These were a mix of people, non-English colonists trying to find cheap land, men who found they preferred the solitude of the wilderness, Indians, local and those already relocated from eastern parts, and soldiers stationed at forts and garrisons along the frontier. There's actually a facet of the transition of frontier to backcountry having multicultural contacts and exchanges. The Shenandoah Valley is an excellent example of the blending of cultures and establishments of so-called civilization that makes a backcountry, yet was still looked down upon by eastern towns. The Germans and Irish coming down the valley from Pennsylvania were farmers enticed by the cheaper land. The labor cut out the wilderness and set out the stage for moving to the frontier further west and solidifying the backcountry. But they were only nominally English citizens. They were considered more expendable and enticed to the fringes of English territory in the New World. Some men on the frontier helped solidify coastal perceptions of frontiersmen by adapting Indian dress of shirt and leggings. Now, this looked odd to townsfolk used to fine linen and silks, but think about it. Wool leggings are a heck of a lot better in the wooded area than breeches and stockings. They protect the leg from brush and bugs and provide a wider range of motion. But because of cultural notions of European superiority, white men wearing Indian garb reinforced the notion of the savage frontier, along with the adaption of hunting to supplement subsistence level farming. Another very strong form of cultural and legal inequality had to do with religion. We're all taught that the colonies were a refuge of religious freedom, but is that really the case? Sadly, no. And this was a surprise when I became aware of this in college. Virginia was an Anglican colony, the established state church of England and Virginia. Colonists, regardless of their faith, paid tithes to the church. The church was in charge of the welfare of the parish. The New England colonists established their own Calvinistic-based church and, again, the colonists paid tithes to the church. Massachusetts in the 17th century expelled colonists who did not follow the tenets of the church, which explains Rhode Island. Basically, if one was not part of the established religion in the colonies, one was at a severe disadvantage in moving ahead. So how do we interpret these types of inequality at the museum? Obviously, a large part of the human experience involves some type or types of the inequalities we just mentioned, and it's necessary to bring that into interpretation of a specific time period. It may be overt or tacit, but the visitor will take away an overarching understanding of the challenges facing the people we represent. Let's go through our sites chronologically. In 17th century England, for instance, we show a yeoman farm family. These people are not struggling. They are part of the elite or those with means. Economic and cultural inequalities don't really touch these people. The underlying story on our farm, however, 
it's the laboring class that works for the yeoman. These people suffered pretty much all of the inequalities we touched upon. One of the most insidious aspects of these inequalities is the hierarchical bias of education. The yeoman class, for the most part, sent their sons to school. Edward Woodhouse, who was the yeoman farmer in our house in the 1650s, was the treasurer of the Elizabethan Free Grammar School in Hartlebury. Hence, yeomans can read and write and do basic math skills. Laborers, for the most part, did not go to school and consequently could not advance themselves beyond their current positions. This led to mass immigration in search of more equal conditions in the New World. Our 18th century Irish farm is a slightly more complicated story. Not only were these tenant farmers experiencing economic inequality by not being able to own land and being forced to pay cash rent to foreign landlords, but these second and third generation descendants of Scottish colonists also suffered religious inequality, which led right back into economic and cultural inequalities. In 1711, Queen Anne, with support from the Tories in Parliament, passed the Occasional Conformity Act of 1711, which made the Anglican religion supreme in Ireland and England. This meant that only Anglicans could hold public office and only Anglican priests could perform marriages. The act was repealed in 1719, but this caused much distress among the Presbyterians and was one of the reasons many decided to leave Northern Ireland. The 18th century was known as the Protestant ascendancy in Ireland, and the biggest disparity was between Catholics and everyone else. The native Irish Catholics went from owning 75% of the land in Ireland in the mid-17th century to under 25% of the land, mostly in the West, in the 18th century. To round out the European people we talk about at the museum, 18th century Germany, particularly the rhineland Flatnet region we showcase, was no picnic for the lower classes. Centuries of war between neighboring countries and princedoms of the Holy Roman Empire saw much of the Platinate's productive land destroyed making it difficult for German peasants, also still suffering under the feudal system, to ever rise above subsistence. Harsh, sumptuary laws were in effect, largely focused on preventing the lower classes from ever rising above their station and to maintain the status quo. Unfortunately for the hopeful colonists, fleeing institutional inequalities for the New World, inequality was found everywhere in the early years of the American colonies. The ideal of the happy and stalwart colonists forging civilization in new territory is fairly blatant revisionist history. Economic inequality may not have been as drastic as it is currently, at least on the American side, but was still there and used to reinforce a stringent social hierarchy. Legal inequality reinforced who would be able to acquire land and where, and also set the stage for entrenching slavery into the foundation of the United States. Cultural inequality brought biases against groups of certain heritage, religion, skin color, and behavior. Not to mention the colonists turning around and inflicting all of these inequalities they were experiencing on the Eastern Woodland Indians pretty much as soon as they got off the boat. One of, if not the most egregious case of inequality we talk about at the Frontier Culture Museum is the European treatment of the Igbo of modern Nigeria. We start that discussion at our West African farm site, which depicts how these people lived with economic and social inequalities typical of groups with a social hierarchy. Outside forces created further inequalities, spurred in no small part by the arrival of Europeans on the western coast. The story darkens as the Europeans move inland, bringing with them ascribed cultural inequalities resulting in the enslavement of thousands, reaching outward to eventually affect millions of Africans. Slavery is one of the most damning expressions of forced inequality, where one group unilaterally determines that the other is entirely unequal and unworthy of treatment on equal grounds. 
There is little to no room for economic advancement. Social status is moot as slaved or considered property, all based on arbitrary assessment of inferiority due to inherent characteristics. This is what is addressed on our 1820 and 1850s American farms. History itself is full of inequality, but it isn't just in the past. The phrase, the past informs the present, is never so applicable than when discussing inequality. We could easily discuss this topic for the next several hours, but unfortunately we're out of time. However, all of these topics will be discussed in much more detail in future episodes. The interpreters do talk about these issues at the museum, and we encourage everyone to visit the museum if interested in these topics. Of course, this isn't the only topic we cover. History is full of bits and pieces that make a whole, and this podcast aims to focus on individual aspects. So we hope you enjoyed banjo strings and drinking gourds. We bring you historical episodes twice a month. You can check out the Frontier Culture Museum online at frontiermuseum.org, on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. You'll find background information on all the farms of the museum, information on upcoming events, and so much more. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, please consider visiting the website and clicking the donate button. Donations to the American Frontier Culture Foundation support programs like field trips, summer camps, and special events. We'll greatly appreciate it. See you next time.